Hi there, this is Ruth Saunders and you're listening to Live from the Cafe, recorded live at Venture Cafe Cambridge, where innovation is for everyone. The following panel discussion took place during our Energy Connect conference night. During the session, three entrepreneurs shared their stories of building successful energy and clean tech companies. Read more about each of the founders and their ventures at VentureCafeCambridge.org slash Energy Connect. All right. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is how I built it, so we're all going to talk about how we built it. Um, everyone here is an entrepreneur. Everyone here is uh, built or building a company, and I think the... Uh, there are always very different experiences and very different um, lessons learned. Different types of companies have different types of challenges. And so I think just for all of our edification, it's great to share those uh, lessons and learnings as, as we grow our companies, and it helps all of us do a better job uh, to kind of see some of the things that arise as you build a company, some of the challenges you face that were unanticipated that aren't the typical ones around you know, is your product on at the you know, sort of revenue ramp that you were expecting or not? A lot of times it's cultural, it's market fit, it's, you know, exogenous things that change that you need to react to or key team members that leave and you need to react to that. So I, I think the thing I think most of us have found is it, it never goes exactly as planned. And so a lot of being an entrepreneur, I think, is um, staying positive, staying focused and really like quickly course correcting and and trusting your gut a lot of the time to make those quick decisions and continue on in a leadership position so the rest of your company doesn't see floundering at the top. Because I think a lot of uh, the way a company succeeds is if there's a lot of confidence in the company that it's being steered in the right way and decisions are being made even when, when challenges come up. So how about we all introduce our companies and what, what we're up to. I'll, I'll just start... Um, I'm Scott Clavenna. I'm the I was the CEO of Green Tech Media and the, the founder, the co-founder of Green Tech Media. So we're based here in Boston. Um, we started in 2007, and so that was right as the clean energy ecosystem was kind of getting rolling uh, worldwide. There was a lot of hope that there'd be um, cap and trade, and a lot of the you know technology innovations going on around. Uh, solar power uh, particularly, but also utility, smart grid, and, and wind technologies were all, and biofuels, you name it. Right in 2007, there was just a lot of interest in the innovation side of the ecosystem. And uh, so we came into it, honestly, as uh, an information provider. So the, the business model that we raised money on here in Boston, and we got money from friends and family, and then also the uh, Massachusetts Green Energy Fund, which was started in the Romney administration, then eventually transferred into the Mass CEC. And so what we did was uh, create a company that simultaneously re released very deep, um, grounded in economics, very deep research on uh, the industries that we chose, solar power first, and then smart grid, technologies and then energy storage but we came into the market mainly with solar a very deep solar industry research all up and down the value chain so from uh, manufa manufacturing technologies and costs down to the demand markets mostly in the US looking at state level demand markets for uh, uh, solar systems and so we had that as a as a way to quickly make money put out industry research reports and subscription services um, selling mainly to technology companies um, 
and to some extent utilities, but really it started out mainly to the technology companies and the financial industry around that. And then we had a new site and uh, we put on conferences. So the whole idea was if we had, we kind of had something for everyone at that point as the whole ecosystem was getting started. Um, and I think the value that we saw we could create with that business model was one where you really create a brand for yourself. You know, the, the news every day was free. So, you know, we had, uh, I think we have a million readers a month and um, lots of people coming to the site now listening to podcasts, um, reading the site every day and learning about the industry, getting sort of in, connected to the industry. There was a lot of people in 2007 coming into the market at that point, looking for jobs, coming in from other industries, um, from tech and IT and, and other areas exploring the clean energy market. And so we were a great place to sort of find out, you know, what was going on, where was money going, where were innovations happening. Um, and you could either do that for free on the site or, you know, you could subscribe to the industry research services. And then we also want to get people together in person. So we have a, a, a line of business that's conferences. And so that just kept growing. We raised another round of money in 2009 and uh, continued to expand and got deeper into industry research that really took off for us. Uh, we had a great group of analysts and uh, editors that was, you know, driving just the, the, the brand in a way that like we were considered very authoritative, very strong on the, um, the news side because they could draw on the industry research to make the news better and more authoritative because <clears throat> they had data to use and expert analysts in-house to uh, uh, test stories against or test ideas against or check press releases against whether that was, you know, credible or not. So it was very authoritative news. And, um, but at the same time, having a million readers a month for the news site created really uh, a marketing arm for the paid products, the industry research and the conferences that we didn't have to pay for, that, that it earned its own um, way through advertising. So the, you know, the clever part of the business model was we sort of created our own brand, generated our own marketing by being who we were, by being a new site and then industry research behind it. And um, in, uh, I'll gloss over all the growing pains. I think I'll save that for the discussion. But so we grew and it was great. And then in 2016, we were acquired by Wood McKenzie, which is a big um, global oil and gas mainly focused uh, energy uh, data and analytics company. And I, they had recently been acquired by Verisk Analytics, which is based in New Jersey, big analytics firm, mainly serving the insurance and you know, risk industries. And what they were becoming very uh, acutely aware of in 2016 is that they didn't have any renewable, they didn't have much to say about renewable energy. They didn't have any renewable energy analysts. Uh, they were really focused on oil and gas and to some extent power. But even when they talked about power, they were really talking about power as downstream demand for natural gas, not really the power market in and of itself. And so, uh, they, they got us to get into that space. And so now we've, uh, in the last, over the last three years, um, because Wood McKenzie is a, a global firm, we've had the good fortune then to uh, put analysts in their offices around the world. So we have a much more global focus than we did when we were just Green Tech Media here in Boston, New York, and San Francisco. Um, and then also integrate with other, with their power team and with a wind team that they acquired separately and really kind of stitch all that together. And I think, Along the way then, on that journey from 2007 to today, that 12-year that period, um, 
inevitably, I think all of us would agree, like you learn a ton. You learn a ton about building a company. You learn a ton about integrating. I mean, in, in, in my case, at least, about taking the culture that you created over uh, nine years and then bringing it into, so we were 53 people when we were acquired by an 8,700-person organization. So sort of colliding, in a way, the culture that we had really invested a lot in and then finding ourselves inside this gigantic, highly structured, all the things that you hear about a corporation of that size are basically true. You know, they, they are really big, hierarchical, very structured, don't necessarily reward nimble, you know, quick thinking, innovation, you know, pivots at the last second. It's, it's you know, and so that ends up um, something I think all of us, if the outcome for us is not just to be gigantic in an IPO, but, you know, to be acquired by another company, a lot of what ends up happening is um, your culture fitting in with uh, uh yeah, with another one. And so I think that's one of the things I want to talk about. There's a bunch of other lessons I learned along the way, but why don't we continue with the introductions and you want to go next? So my name is um, Joel Whitman. I am an executive with a company called Global Marine Group. Global Marine's a very old company from the 1850s, uh, been installing cables under the sea since that, since those days. I got involved with the company about 15 years ago when we bought um, uh, I was part of a private equity firm that bought a company called Global, Cro Global Crossing, sold Global Marine, which was its installation arm, uh, and became independent installer. Since that time, we diversified uh, into power cable installation and became one of the leading power cable installers, the offshore wind market in Europe and now in Asia. So the story that I'm going to tell tonight, or I'm interested in telling if you guys are interested in hearing it, is really how we diversified a... Um, fiber optic cable installer, because everyone in this room will know that the internet is run by subsea fiber optic cables, or it's certainly routed by those. How do we install and maintain those? And then how do we diversify into a power cable installation business, which sounds similar, but it's not in any way? Different vessels, different work rules, different equipment, different lifestyle for the for the mariners, everything. Um, and then we grow to be a market leader in the European market um, and uh, now have a, an opportunity to do the same here in the U.S. Anyone that follows the offshore wind market in the U.S., you'll have seen that uh, up and down from Maine really down to Virginia, there's about 20 to 25 gigawatts projected over the next 15 years to be installed, which is 25 gigawatts more than we have today. So we have one prototype project off the coast of Rhode Island, and that's it. Uh, so what, what that means is that we will have to create an entirely new industry here in the U.S. of vessels, of people that are qualified, trained and qualified to install the projects, uh, fabrication plants, certainly assembly plants at ports and port facilities, um, and then equipment, subsea and topside equipment uh, to install and maintain those things. Uh, because at that scale, uh, the industry will be a year-round kind of a thing for the foreseeable future, both installing and maintaining. So my job is to replicate what we did in Europe here under the restrictions and the differences that each state has kind of put forward as the way they want to run the industry. And then to find a way to do that with a supply chain that doesn't exist here in the US, talk about culture, a bunch of European companies who want to come here and do work, but they don't know the difference between Rhode Island and Virginia and a bunch of Americans who want the jobs because it's really good jobs, but aren't qualified to be working at sea on high voltage electricity in our case, or 
turbine erection in the case of a Siemens or a Vestas. So there's a ton of opportunity. Um, not all of the European experience is going to translate very well at all. So there's a ton of a Boston-type opportunity. And one last point that I'll mention is that uh, it's an interesting thing to keep in your mind. To permit an offshore wind project, a developer will spend in the neighborhood of, I don't know, seven or eight years and 30 to $50 million just to gather and get the data required to get the permits. That data is not utilized in a way that anyone here would recognize as forward-looking when it comes to operate, installing and operating the 20, 25 years of that plant. So there's a huge opportunity for people that are involved in data integration, geospatial data planning, and then uh, uh, thinking about data as a, uh, a predictive analytics tool to kind of take a look at something that's buried under the ocean or something that's 20, 60, 150 miles offshore is really hard to keep an eye on, very expensive to go out there and take a look at it. So having a, a data infrastructure that allows you to see it here uh, back on land is a really big deal and something that the industry has to really tackle. And I think the U.S. market is going to be the place to do that. So that's what Global does, and I'm happy to talk about that as we go. Awesome. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. My name is Dinesh. Um, so what we do is way, com way less complicated than, than what they do at Global Marine. But uh, um, I founded and started ThinkLight um, out of my dorm room, actually, uh, 11 years ago, uh, 2008, while I was a freshman at Babson College. And it was one of the worst times to start a business. Um, the world was crashing and burning. And... Um, at that time, I had a co-founder, and uh, which is uh, uh, a co-founder, and um, uh, we were bouncing off ideas. And my background originally was um, computer engineering. I used to build computers and hardware and software. And um, we said, "Well, no one in the country has money. Let's start a company that you could put money in people's pocket." And energy savings was, you know, around that time, 07, 08, the whole clean tech space was starting. So um, we said, you know what, we are going to start an LED savings company. We're going to go knock on doors, and we're going to sell some energy savings, but in the form of light bulbs. But what, we're, what we're really selling is energy savings. So 3 a.m. at night, we whip out a laptop and start programming algorithm and, and a software that would optimize savings. The initial pitch, you know, and what you'll see is, um, the summarized version of the journey is a lot of pivot points, uh, and uh, my motto till today is the best way to raise money or to raise resources is from your customer. Um, and you'll see that all along from how we started from nothing to today, you know, as a as a thirty million dollar corporation, uh, we still raise money from our clients all the time. Um, so in, when we first started, we uh, literally just. We knew we wanted to be in the commercial space, but we we started in the residential space just to make sure we weeded out all the kings and make sure this thing really works. So we knocked on almost every single door uh, from Wellesley, Newton, Needham, down to Brookline. Almost got called on by the cops several times trying to sell light bulbs and savings. Um, one thing we learned was uh, it's a bad idea to knock on a home the, the door of a home at like 2 p.m. when it's just a woman at home with the kids, and you say, can I come in and count all your light bulbs? Do not do that. Um, but uh, we started in the residential market. Uh, we closed our first few sales, and we were like, where do we get the product from? We sold a bunch of energy savings. 
uh, and uh, we started to become gradually resellers of GE Philips. And keep in mind, this is 2008 when um, it was before the days where there were LEDs on the shelves of Home Depot and Lowe's. So you buy each bulb for 120 bucks online as an authorized reseller. And that's really how it started. And the pitch really was, at that time, there was a big notion of, of convert all lights to LEDs. Um, in an average household, you can spend up to $10,000 doing that, and the payback is 20 years. Versus our approach was focus on the light bulbs that were on for the longest hours of operation with the highest inefficiency rating. And maybe you'd spend end up, you end up spending only $2,000, but the payback is three years. And, and that's really how we got into the market space. Um, we did that for a year. Life was good. You know, we, we got some good revenue. It was good pocket money. And what kept me up, kept me up at night was what the day these light bulbs that we are selling comes on the shelves of the retail locations or online will be overnight done. Um, so uh, one evening, uh, you know, we came up with this big idea of let's go talk to GE and Philips and explain to them how we can customize better circuits and be more efficient and uh, get them to make light bulbs for us. So we networked our way through an executive VP's office in Ohio where the, one of the assembly plants are. And we said, here, here it is out. This is the next blend all idea. We are going to design light bulbs. We have several commercial customers that we are now getting into that needs efficient retrofits that is not on the market. So we will design them, and you guys make them for us, and we'll sell them. And the and the guy, I'll never forget, it was one of the most, you know, uh, enlightening conversations of my life. He's like, "Listen, kid, that's not how we work over here. We spend billions of dollars doing research, trying to mass standardize and customize SKUs, and how we can bring the next technology." And we sell it through our channels. And you may have a customer that wants a particular light rendering in a certain way, in a certain beam angle, in a certain way. But we don't care because we sell it to a manufacturer's rep who sells it to a distributor, who sells it to a contractor, who sells it finally to the customer. So somewhere along the line, they'll fix that problem. They'll know what to do. So that's not our job. So anyways, good luck and call me never. So uh, when I came out of that meeting, you know, I, I felt beaten up, of course. But the two things that I took away was was that was the two 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 things I took away was I want to start a light bulb company that a will be the most efficient way to customize for these customers because these guys are not doing it. And the second thing I want to do is screw all the guys in the middle. We're going to go direct to the customer. Um, um, there's nobody in this white space, and that's what we're going to do. And that was when my co-founder at that time said, you're crazy. Um, I'm out. I'm running away. You want to compete with GE and Philips? And I said, absolutely. Um, but that was kind of like the rebirth, the rebeginning of, of ThinkLight. You know, long story short, till today is we do uh, a lot of in-house R&D in, in our headquarters right here in Natick. Uh, we do a lot of feasibility studies and, and, and thermal cooling circuits. Oh, talking about light bulbs. Yeah, right? <laughs> we can help you with that. <laughs> um, we do a lot of R&D in Germany, and our manufacturing partner is Samsung in Seoul, South Korea. Um, so all of our components are made by them. We have a, a, a sizable engineering team over there that's always coming up with new concepts, new ideas. 
uh, and we do some of our assembly in China and some of it in um, in Korea itself. And we export all over the world. Uh, we we export to and do turnkey solutions in the U.S., South America, Europe, Middle East, Australia, and in Europe. And our our main advantage of why we've been able to grow is we go to large corporations and say, what do you have? How much money can you save if you use traditional off-the-shelf LED? Um, the answer is typically 40 to 50%. If you go with our stuff, that will spend significant time and resources to engineer to be very specific to that particular location, you'd save about 40% more than traditional LED. So when it comes to large organizations, this number is big. And we say, allow us to do one or two locations and replicate globally or across all the chains. So that's, what, that's our model. And over the years, we have you know, innovated through controls, IoT, Bluetooth, um, um, whether it is direct indirect lighting. And recently, we got into bioengineering where we are customizing spectrums for particular kind of applications, whether in healthcare, indoor agriculture, air purification. And uh, we've kind of built ourselves as the lighting experts that if no one else can do it, we can. And not only will we just make it for you, but we are the soup to nuts. You know, we, we do engineering, we do lighting simulation, we do everything that those value adds in your traditional lighting supplier would provide for you. We do the whole thing. So it's refreshing when when manufact when a corporation see us and say, Oh, you're a manufacturer, but you do, you support the whole thing. We like to have one neck to squeeze, you know, like that's us. So um so that's that's the journey of what we've done and of course today we always exclusively for commercial. We we haven't done residential since two thousand and nine, but uh that's how we started and that's how we evolved over the years. So. How many employees do you have? Now we are almost sixty globally. Yeah. Great. Um, so my name is Elise Strobach, uh, and I'm uh, with CEO and founder of uh, AeroShield Materials. And uh, we make insulation for the glass inside of windows. Um, and so I think I'm pretty early compared to everybody else. So um, this is actually where I'm the act of spinning out of MIT right now. Um, so the material actually that we work with uh, was developed uh, when I started at MIT for my master's degree. We were looking at trying to make a better solar thermal receiver for things like hot water. Um, and we ended up, after delving into the fundamentals of the material, coming up with something that was transparent and one of the most insulating materials in the world. Um, and so we looked at this and we said, wow, we've, we've got the foundation here. You know, how can, we, how can we make this have an impact beyond the research? And what we found is that in this solar thermal application, the, that fit just wasn't quite right. Um, so what happened is around that time I was transitioning into my PhD and I took the opportunity um, to focus in an area where I thought we could have an impact with this material, and that was in windows. Uh, and so what followed was several years of just learning about the industry, learning about what the problem was they had, what they looked at in the past, what the solutions were, um, and what we found, you know, over just trying to understand uh, the problem in industry so that we could make our research better, was that this is this huge problem that that nobody's really been able to solve. And in fact, it's $20 billion in energy every winter in the United States that goes through the glass alone. Um, and so we had this question of why aren't people making better windows? Why aren't they making better decisions? Well, it turns out there are better windows available. So if you guys have heard of um, like triple pane windows where you have three panes of glass, they're incredibly efficient. And the problem is they come with a huge upfront cost. So when we looked at why consumers aren't making better decisions for their homes, 
it just became glaringly obvious. They just can't afford to do it. It doesn't make sense. So then what we said is, well, we have this material. We know what the problem is. How can we solve that problem? And so, uh, you know, that influenced, we had direct iteration with, um, you know, industry customers, this complex window value chain, um, which I'd be more than happy to talk long about because I've learned more than you ever could possibly want to know about windows. Um, but it was, it was so important to have that feedback loop of, we were doing the technical innovation and without all that continuous, uh, checking with what the real problem was, we would have developed something that was completely useless that would have been put on a shelf somewhere um, and, and never had that ultimate impact, which is what, um, you know, as we started to hear that kind of product market fit, um, it gave us the momentum to form a founding team because before that was just me in a lab. Um, so we put together a team, we brought in advisors, we started to share what we learned and, and people started to get excited about it. Um, and it really gave us the momentum to get to a point where we're at now, where we're actually um, going to be setting up a pilot manufacturing line here in Boston in the next few years and, and starting to get into actual buildings. Um, and just for a little bit of appreciation, I mean, this is incredibly conservative uh, industry. So for us to, you know, take this leap out of the university and actually start manufacturing material is is huge. Um, and I And I think that there's a lot of lessons that we have yet to learn. Um, from those around us, um, but it's it's been a great experience, I think, to transition from kind of this researcher role where um, a lot of times we'll even get into this mode where we say, well, what research can I do that will get funded? Uh, and the end goal then will be to meet the funding requirements, um, but to have that transition of what's the problem, how do you solve it, and then how do you put the team together, how do you put the resources together, how do you put the execution plan so that you can actually make that a reality, um, was is an amazing experience, um, and and I think uh, you know there's nothing else rather be doing, but it, it's also not trivial. I think there's a lot of a lot of in in all these different paths. You know, there's a lot of um, a lot of barriers that you can run into, and so uh, being able to to push through those sometimes, and then have the resources as well to do that, I think is is really important. So. Yeah. How are you funded now? What's the funding situation, and what's coming next in that regard? Yeah, so right now we're, um, uh, so my co-founder and I are both actually still at MIT working to spin out. So I'm still a graduate student, uh, so still, so I'm used to the no money lifestyle, so I'm ready for that next step. Um, in particular, we're, we're funded right now, we, we took the opportunity to, to get some non-dilutive, uh, you know, student competition prizes, um, just enough to get us um, off the ground. Uh, and, and so the next, the next phase will be a seed round. Uh, we'll be doing some early proof of concept to try and make that a more, um, enticing for, for those with money, um, to, to work with us. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's the next step on the horizon is definitely answering that money, that money question. Uh. And since you're kind of in the heading toward a, a manufacturing like, what is the big, like, is the next round of funding need to be pretty significant, or is it still sort of bench level and then you get there? Do you have a sense of that, like what the, the step function is? Yeah, it's it's definitely, we've done a lot of time at uh, the university level, um, it definitely guided, a lot of the, the fundamental work that we did was guided by the end needs of, of the impact for the application. Um, but what we did was we, we definitely hit what can we can prove at the lab scale. And so the next big demonstration needs to be the manufacturing and the scalability of the material. So it will be a rather large round, um, probably on the order of, of like a million dollars for a seed round. Um, that manufacturing is capital intensive. That's part of, of what it requires. But it also meant that 
on this path here, we really de-risked everything else that we could because you, you can't get rid of that kind of large capital money um, manufacturing risk. So we tried to mitigate all the other risks and, and focus just on one at a time. Did, did you guys raise money or what's your, how are you capitalized? Um, no, we never raised money. Um, we, we raised money from our customers. And it's funny because the, the first sale we ever made was without even knowing where we were going to get the product from. And then we used that to fund research and to fund R&D and to find uh, component suppliers and design our light bulbs. And I remember the f when we got into commercial 2009, um, my, uh, my brother, who's three years ago quit his job and is now our CFO, he would say I wasted my time. But what we would do is because we were in every single part of the manufacturing process, uh, it was pretty fun to build very unique things. So um, we would customize components, customize you know, uh, uh, circuitries, and customize form factors, and do the hardest things. And we almost had the wrong pitch, which is a very important lesson when you're a startup, because we would say we can make any kind of light bulb versus the most efficient light bulb, because we would have 30 to 40% more efficiency. That became the pitch much later on. First, we would say we could make any kind of light bulb. So the people that we attracted were, you know, hotel lobbies and architects, and we built stuff for private jets and 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 you know yachts and really interesting stuff. It was a great way to kind of test the system that we built, uh, um, and then uh, uh, all those stuff was, of course, capital intensive to make such unique lighting. So we would pretty much say, oh, we've we got a customer. You can't say no. You want to build that? Okay, cost X amount for the product prepay with deposit and we would actually build it even though we didn't have it yet on the name of it's custom right so we'll build it for you so we did that for a while and then uh, and then in 2010 when we were, when we had good revenues but it was it was very capital intensive and the rate of growth wasn't satisfactory we said let's let's regroup you know let's what's the top five most popular light bulbs in the world and let's make a much better solution for that. And of course, there's going to be tweaks along the way, but let's focus on that. And what makes it really unique? It's, it's a very empirical numbers-based sale. Is If you go with XYZ company to change your lighting, you can save $10,000 a month, versus with us, you'll save $15,000 a month. And we present those numbers, we show the cost of ownership, and uh, we, we would take a piece of the savings. Uh, later on, it evolved again into just optimize my payback, and larger corporations have money to spend anyways. They budget for it, and then they spend it. Um, so it was very savings-based, and we'll say pay us a fraction of that, and then we'll go deploy the project. Uh, so that's how we've been doing it. Uh, as recently as three years ago, we did a major IoT-based control Bluetooth project for, for a major um, uh, hospital customer, and uh, we had about... 80% of it built, uh, good enough for it to take it to market to, to make a sale. And when they were interested, we tweaked it, you know, and used that as, as, as confidence to fully deploy it and take it to market. So that's always been our approach. You know, it's, it's entrepreneurial, but it's, it's efficient. Uh, yep. And it's, 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 great. it's a great feeling to say whatever we've built, you know, we've, if not sold, we've pre-sold. Right, right. And how about... Um, with Global Marine, how much do you feel like an entrepreneur versus you know someone bringing a business here to the the U.S. and how is that maybe different in the way you think about the culture of your group 
because you're tied to a European organization versus someone who is literally building a startup and there's a single vision and you get everybody bought in and go and maybe give them, you know, equity in the company to help, you know, inspire them. How, how is that different for you? That's a good question. Um, there's two reasons why it feels very much like an entrepreneurial environment. Um, one, one is that the um, regulatory environment in the U.S. when it comes to utility-scale energy is, um, let's say, Byzantine. So the ability to actually do something to get these lights on and to have them be renewable energy, um, all of the inertia of the industry is against that happening. Uh, despite the fact that a lot of people would want it, there's just not a, it's an industry that was created by our great-great-grandparents and it's been taped together with lots of things since then. Um, but we have not, unlike, uh, let's say, um, I don't know, uh, telecommunications that got tipped over in the 80s and the 90s, right? Not, nothing has touched this. It's a monolithic thing. And so when you think about uh, our lifestyle in the U.S., the thing that underpins all of it, you know, you have air, water, food, electricity. And our electricity system is the most vulnerable asset we have. So going at that and fixing that is it's going to be new for all of us because no one has done it in our lifetime uh, or that of our parents. And then secondarily is that the idea of doing that and doing that with a next-gen technology, which is how do we do that in a way that for the next 100 years we'll have a system that actually can anticipate how electricity is going to be used, how electricity will be used as fuel, it abuses everything. Our relationship with devices, our relationship with the plugs in the wall have changed just in the last 15 years. Nobody really can anticipate that. So we have to think about how is that going to look 50, 60, 70 years from now? Because we can't afford to redo the entire thing from scratch 30 years from now. So from an entrepreneurial standpoint, for our company, for me, it's very much being... Um, um, re smart to recognize the regulatory environment is going to be a straight uphill climb. Mm -hmm. And then the way that we did it in Europe, the way we're doing it in Taiwan or, or Japan, mm -hmm. it's not going to work here. Mm -hmm. So it has to be unique to this market because mm -hmm. what the governor wants to see, what the federal government wants to see, mm -hmm. what the ratepayer wants to see is all unique per state. Most people in the state that they live in don't understand what they're really paying for electricity. Mm -hmm. So most people think electricity is for free. But if you go to Logan tonight, everyone's what? Hovering around the plugs. Why? Because their devices are dry, right? So how do we as, as normal citizens actually use something that we think is free but we know is not free? We don't want to pay for it, but when we don't pay for it, we have this um, huge risk to our way of life, quite frankly. Right. And do the employees that you hire, it sounds like your employees are pretty technical, pretty specialized. Do they have the feeling that they're, are they coming to it because it's an innovative, here's a new cool thing I can get involved with? Like many other startups, it's a you know, millennial that's like, yeah, hey, this is the next hot thing, I'm passionate about it. Or are you in a position where the skill set is so unique that it's a pretty technical hire and you're just out mining a scarce That's pool a good of, question. It's one reason why I came out tonight to this because it's electrical engineering, it's um, marine engineering, and then it's obviously um, uh, mechanical engineering. Um, and all three of those things very rarely come together in any other industry. 
There's not a class you can go to at any university that'll teach you those things. You have to have three separate degrees. So uh, an electrical engineering at most universities was considered something that wasn't that relevant anymore. You know, but we don't really have people specializing that like you might have in computer science. Yet our electrical engineering is the thing that drives our country. So the issue that I'm faced with, and I spent a lot of time talking to labor, uh, working with uh, indus various industry groups is saying to high schoolers, uh, technical high schools, yes, but also um, a regular high school, is that this is a workforce development issue that is going to provide great paying jobs for people for the next 30 years, easy, just building this out. Imagine what it was like, you know, if you look at uh, what it was like to build Boston in, you know, the 1860s to 1920s. That's what it's going to be like. And the idea that a kid can be sitting as a freshman in high school today and look at this as a career path and find whether working through a labor union or going and getting a, a graduate degree at a, at a university in project management, program management, marine engineering, you know, splicing a cable, splicing a high voltage cable in the ocean is cool. It's cool. And no one, there's very few Americans, just to give you a picture, uh, one of the manning, uh, uh, staffing companies that we use, um, they have a database just for one particular type of job on a back deck of a cable ship, uh, very high, high, uh, uh, importance job, and we had them run the database, how many people hit that category? 30,000 people worldwide were qualified to do this job, which sounds like a lot, but in the world, it's not that many. How many of those were Americans? Less than a 1,000. And that's, that's the issue right there. And it takes a good nine, 10 years to get somebody from, I want to do this, to I can do this. So that's a more high-paying side of it or a more specialized side of it, but the same folks that keep the subways running and keep these buildings lit can be trained to be mariners and can do these jobs. So it's a very exciting thing, but it's something that culturally yeah. we, we don't think about working with our hands and our brains as a mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. You know, those things are separated, right? The sorting hat does that to us in middle school. Yeah. The reality is, is that doing a 10 megawatt turbine 25 miles off the coast of Nantucket requires a lot of brains and a lot of hands. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do 100 of those, you can replace a, a coal fire plant. Yep. So it's yep. cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How about team building for you guys? What, how's it going so far? And how is like your, your aspirations for it met the reality of it? Are you finding the people you want? And even beyond that, are you actually creating sort of the, the, the profile of the company that you'd like to have? Because one of the things I found was I aspired to a really interesting, richly diverse organization. And what ended up happening that was endlessly frustrating to me is you'd hire three or four people um, that were of a particular type, and then they were in charge of hiring often. So it sort of flows down. And they tend to hire people just like themselves. And so you go from an aspiration that looks like this, and it starts to narrow over time. And it's not until a year or two later that you realize, like, oh, I've created a little little fraternity here. That's not exactly what I had in mind. So, like, you know, how, how are you guys going about that? And, how, you know, what's your experience, uh, you know, doing that? Yeah, yeah. You mentioned a great point is um, after a while when I got to the point where I didn't have to do the hiring myself, the, the as a founder, you can control that. Right, you 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 are trying to build a particular culture, 
and you said I would want to have a team of 10 sales guys, but two of them need to be more tech savvy and enterprise, for example, and two needs to be more medical, for example. And, and you have that vision and you build that. Um, same thing of, uh, I'm a big fan of culture index. So when you're hiring, you don't just look at the skill set, but also personality. Um, and you kind of intentionally try to almost control your population. Uh, but when you, when you let your VPs do that for you, um, a lot of them, and, and maybe it's, a, it's an older generation thing, is they bring people that they've worked for in other organizations, uh, which I didn't realize because my company is the only job I've ever had. Uh, and, and they'll say, I work great with this guy in that tech company. He's awesome. He killed his numbers. I brought him in here. You don't even need to interview him. He's going to crush it. And I'm like, I trust you. You have team's goals. Run with it. And you realize that it's the same culture, the same type of people that they bring. And it's not as diverse as you like it to be. So um, uh, uh, hiring, though, I will say, has gotten much harder. Uh, we had a situation where there's almost maximum employment. Uh, which is good for the country, but for business owners, it doesn't give you much choice. Uh, and, and you're always tapping into your network to pull smart people from other places. So we've seen that in the last three years versus I remember when we were hiring 2011, 2012. Half the people that would show up were looking for jobs. And now you don't see that. You know? So it's a struggle, but being in the Boston area is truly a blessing because yeah. it's great yeah, talent here. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. How about you? How's it going at this early stage and have you, have you encountered any of that yet or is that to come? Yeah, I, I think that uh, one one piece that happened as uh, so transitioned like into being a real company, right, uh, rather than just my research is that it took me a lot by surprise, like that you have to be thinking about these things well in advance. And all the pieces, as you talked about, the diversity, where you're sourcing this, when do they come on, um, all kind of hit us all at once because we got momentum, which led to more momentum, which led to more work than we could do. Um, I think we were very strategic right now, the point we're at. We, we don't need a lot of people. We can't sustain a lot of people. Um, so the way that, that we look at it is we always start with going back to the mission. Of, you know, Very early on when we actually said, we're going to found this, we're going to take this, we defined what the mission was, uh, what our company purpose was. And that kind of self-selects a lot of people early on. Uh, you know, The people that we hire now are going to be ones that are going to have to work a lot of hours, uh, prioritize this just to get it off the ground. Um, but I think it's been one of the things that we've actually brought in advisors who um, help us think about building the team specifically, because I, I think that it's very easy, um, especially as a founder, to get so lost in what you're trying to do, just say, oh, I just need someone to help me out to get to the next milestone. So I'll just take whoever is ready, willing, capable right now, rather than thinking strategically about um, like what you're trying to put together and, and are you bringing in diversity? One of the, one of the reasons that I think we've had so much recent um, growth, uh, unexpected uh, in a good way, um, is because when my founder joined, I uh, convinced a lab mate who was working on a different technology, um, but we're just, we're opposite in a lot of ways um, so that there's, there's balance there. So I think I had the opportunity to see very early on what that kind of diversity can bring um, to the development of the team, uh, as well as the technical side of things. Um, but I would say that it's something that we're very focused on keeping like right in the front, right, a vision, a focus of, we need to be aware of like every decision that we make is either helping us build a diverse, capable team or 
Um, it's not. It's either helping us grow faster, better, uh, or it's not. And so I, I think we're thinking about that as we're putting together like this development plan. And, and as we think about doing manufacturing, right, we're going to have to have a diverse team just by the nature of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's very important. And I we've we've put a lot of um, we look very far in advance when we're thinking about these mm. things. So I'm, we're, we're putting together a hiring plan that is we're thinking about who do we need in, you know, six months. 18 months, 36 months to make this successful. Um, and I think that the one thing is, is, is having those advisors, people who've been through the experience before is what we're going to rely on because we haven't done it yet. Um, and so we're hoping to at least not make the same mistakes that, that they've made. If we're going to make them, let's make new interesting ones. Right. right. So, <laughs> right, right. No, that's a good point. We, we definitely had one of the things you mentioned, um, that I think is attention for a lot of uh, companies starting out that are starting to grow quickly is that there's an urgency to get people in to just get the the work that's in front of you done. And so you start to, it's not necessarily lower your standards, but you literally, you know, there's a pool and you just need to make a decision quickly. And I think the challenge when you're a young company, you say you're only 10, 12, 10 to 15 people, it, those people are really uh, because they're so early, they're really key and they end up having a tremendous amount of influence because they're 10% of your whole organization. And so if you quickly hire someone just because you need someone in the door at that desk because that needs to get done, the issue is if you need to let them go or what have you, they've probably made friends with everyone around them. It ends up being extremely disruptive to start calling that early in a company. And so I... That was, I think, looking back for us specifically, I think some of the hardest things that happened to us really came down to that. We made what seemed like an okay decision at the time. That person was very early. They started to build a team. They started to have a really critical role in the organization. And then we learned that they weren't the right fit or it wasn't, you know, for whatever reason, we missed something in the interview process. And when you let that person go, First, that's not that easy to do. It's a difficult conversation. Sometimes it takes weeks or months to really work through it. And um, I think as a leader, one of the things I found in that process that was also a hard-won lesson is that the longer you let that go on and not deal with it, first people look at that person. You're underperforming. You're really bugging me. This is disappointing. And then they stop looking at that person. They start looking at you and they say, why aren't you doing anything about that? And your credibility starts to go down and it all starts to happen right in front of your face and it happens really quickly and it's very stressful. And then, then, you know, sort of excising that is even just more traumatic. And so I found that to be the, the team building thing in a way is like the most rewarding part of it all that like, I think we built ultimately through all those, you know, navigating all the difficult parts. So we built a great team, um, that are still great friends today. It feels like a, a 10 year old family, but along the way, boy, there's some really tough lessons around managing the growth, managing expectations. And even when you get, get to, when you go from sort of 10 or 15 to 25, when hierarchy starts to naturally sort of settle in, um, and people are used to wearing many hats and used to, kind of bopping around and negotiating their salaries sort of off cycle because they hit some goals early and things like that. There's a point where like that has to stop. It's just totally unscalable and unsustainable. And um, that was a maturing process for us that I'm glad we went through because certainly 
one of the things in our case that um, was important was get going through those levels of maturity at 25 and then 50 and 60 people is that when we get acquired and we're into a much more hierarchical organization, we're not hitting it just everyone, you know, wears a different hat and everyone thinks they're the boss of everyone. And like we, we impose some of that structure that, that can feel um, anti-startup, you know, but it's actually super important if you're going to be, you know, if you're going to enter a larger organization, you know, and, and integrate well and actually be attractive to that acquirer. And I think it's really easy to romanticize that startup mode. Everyone's like, oh, those are the greatest days, and they weren't because at the end of the day, you don't know if you're going to have a job tomorrow. And so actually maturing so that you're running like a professional company and professionalizing all those things you're talking about is a huge step. And most founders choke at that. Most That's why most founders need to be exited at that point, not, not present company excluded, of course. But they can't because they're so, they're so romantically involved with that, that time in their life when they, it was just a garage. It was just them. And, and it's like, yeah, but you're, you're, you are now constraining the company. And exiting them is rough. You know, or reducing their role is rough because they want to be the chair and the president. And yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of companies, they just they stop right there. And then, yeah. like you say, the best people leave and then you get reinforced weakness and you're done. Game over. It's true. It's funny you say that just to quickly add. Most of the structure that has happened in our organization is when I traveled. Whenever I traveled and then the next thing I was that we implemented that, we implemented that because you weren't around. Yeah, yeah it is absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, and having the confidence to say that the founder is actually willing to allow them to be tr legitimate leaders of the company, not, you know, the founder is always right and the founder has to do this. And so if the founder actually makes it clear that their vision is that the company should survive them and that they would love to be able to step back and play a supporting role, not the leading role, that putting that ego aside is like the most difficult thing to do because they're so wedded to it. But when it can happen that's when you see a company really rock it up and really makes a difference. And at some point, I'm sure all organizations will go through that phase. And what I can tell you is when that happens, it's like, crap, why didn't I do this before? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Always. Yes. It all, you always see it um, when it's uh, not quite too late, but it's getting late. Yes. <laughs> you never see it in advance. Yeah, that's a great question. So the question was like, at what point do you – does operations become important enough that you need to assign someone or select for people that are really good at that? I mean, I um, I definitely found that to be the, the case. I think actually early, the earlier the better in a way because if you let it go too long, then you're sort of putting out fires and, and like correcting a problem versus organizing for it. So one, I think everyone should have a co-founder. I don't think I, I really am not a big fan of the sole entrepreneur. I've got it all figured out, and then I've got a bunch of VPs. I really like the idea of co-founding a company at that level. So you're really side by side. Maybe it's CEO and president, or you come up with the the titles that that suit you. But I do like the idea of a co-founder, and I do like the idea in the the co-founding selection is that one of them is really I don't know, it's sort of right brain, left brain or whatever, that one of them is pretty operationally focused and pretty organized and, you know, diligent and persistent and, and you know, prioritizes that. And the other one can kind of get, maybe is more external facing, that with customers raising money, you know, communicating the vision, that kind of thing. Um, and if you if you don't have that, then I, I do think um, there is uh, 
an early point where there was a, just as an anecdote, when we were at like 22 people or so, I thought we were doing great. You know, cause the, the revenue, not, everything looked really good from our revenue and success and, um, uh, all the performance metrics that we were looking for, we were getting there and, and hitting those. And so I was coming into each quarterly sort of group meeting feeling pretty good. And at one point, um, it wasn't a co-founder of one of my VPs said, you know, cause he was listening more to the, the individual employees and a lot of the new people and what their expectations were. And he came to me and said, Hey, you know, there's a lot of people here who don't even really know who they work for, who they report to. There's a lot of like confusion going on in this company and you're not seeing it, but it's starting to really spread. And so we did a quick, like literally just Google survey or whatever, just had, just sent it around. And it went like one of the questions was, do you know who your boss is? And literally like 60% said no. Um, and so that was a real eye opener because that was that point that the 20 to 25 is when like, I think just humans start to like fall apart, you know, unless there's some imposed structure. Um, and, uh, so I think had, had earlier on, I had someone who was really operations focused, really like, like let's run this business in, in, you know, with an eye toward organizing it for optimal sort of performance and everything. I think I, I would have gotten in front of that earlier. Fortunately, I was able to um, kind of impose that quickly. And also, I think at that point, what I did without necessarily naming a COO, it's still pretty early for that, but at least sort of make a quick decision around who just from my perception, who are the natural managers here and who are the natural sort of individual performers and take those natural managers and say like, great, man, or whoever you are. <laughs> like, you've got three people under you now. Like this team you're in, you're the leader of that. Go, go, go. And um, it really like crystallized. And I think people, um, one of the things I learned is that there is a point where people are less happy if they don't know who they work for. Like if they don't have someone um, that's interacting with them about their work product, setting goals, you know, giving them feedback, instead of just thinking, I'm doing my job, so I guess it's good. Sounds like we're doing well. But see, an entrepreneur like you guys love having no supervision because you just, you know, it's blue yeah, sky, right? right? Every day's blue the sky. the self-perpetuation. Right. And so everyone must be like me. And no, that's not it at all. And the, and people want that structure. And I think you made an important point. The idea that people come tend to come in two types. There's there's um, individual contributors, and then there's people that like being part of groups or like to be charge of groups. And there, we all do it. We all try to take a superstar individual contributor, and then promote them to a manager. And that is the kiss of death. And so you know, a smart a startup organization or a, a growing organization must have. Must, people must realize that being an individual contributor has as much status as being a manager of people because that way a top salesperson or a pro product strategy person or a top um, operations person that isn't really good at managing people but is really good at problem solving is allowed to have a status in the company without having to be the manager of other souls that are just going to crumble underneath their poor, poor leadership. And it always happens. And then you see these people that are just damaged or worse – people that could be good managers don't have a shot because the bad manager is being coddled by the entrepreneur who wishes everyone was like him or her. 
It's real. It, it, the dysfunction is profound at 25 people. Yeah. So if you if you had the choice to um, fill out your C ranks, what order would you fill it out in? in terms of like, you know, CSO, CFO, COO. Like, is there an order that generally makes sense? I guess it's probably different for all of us. Like ours wasn't a tech company. Um, ours was really an operating company, so I didn't need a CTO. I think most tech companies need a CTO pretty quickly. That's often the co-founder. Um, for us, I think uh, my the the way we split it. I guess the my co-founder, I was the president, and he was ostensibly the COO. I think we found over time that actually wasn't a good fit for him, and he ended up kind of moving in a different direction around taking over a little more of a tech role. Um, so you have to have some flexibility. But I actually, I'm a big believer in operations, a big believer in that. So, um, but I think it's because I've always had sort of uh, non-tech companies that are very operations focused. So when things break, it's usually, that's how it's, you know, that's what you were missing you know, when that happened. Um, and then, uh, I would also have a head of sales right away. You got to start talking to customers. Like that, that's what I was going to say is that the somebody needs to sell, and usually the founder likes to think that they're really good sales. By and large, they're usually average, but th because they're the ones that close the first five deals, I close the first five deals. I know how to do it. No, a true sales professional, then someone that really knows how to sell, and then let the founder. Someone needs to be the top sale seller. Someone needs to be the operational day-to-day -day person. And then the third person in that triumvirate has to be a strategically-minded finance person. Has to be. Because when that's just reduced to a bean counter and they just show you the numbers and they don't tell you what your alternatives are, they're useless. A, a, a financial person that is not strategic at that point, I find almost worse than not having them at all because I can run QuickBooks. What you really want is someone that can say, okay, like I was talking in the earlier presentation, we need to raise capital. Here's five different ways we can do it. Probably a lot of stuff that you deal with uh, or you will be dealing with. And here's how we can manage our burn between now and then while we raise that capital versus this is how we could do it this other way or this is how we could cut some costs. Having that operations, true sell selling capability, and then financial strategy, you can go a long way with that. just that those three types of folks. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. This is how the order was, and and also your comment about the two co-founders. Uh, uh, I'm a big believer of that, and and it has to be very complementary skills. Um, and that was the you know I, I gave a panel earlier on a few uh, a few weeks ago about picking the right co-founder, right? And the, the the biggest reason why my initial co-founder kind of had a falling out was because we were both you know really optimistic, trying to We'll go meet people and and how can we close a sale kind of people kind of person um i was a little bit more tech savvy but we were always doing the same things we both were horrible in finance we both had low attention to detail um do you fill out you know aptitudes and we were kind of similar um and then we had a disagreement philosophically so that was it and then it was left for myself and the first c-level person i got was a vp of sales while I was be trying to, you know, teaching him how to sell and, and, and being the supporter from the back end. And then the next person was I wanted to bring in a finance person. And that's where all was led. I'm like, I want someone who I can trust, who I can have equal partnership, you know, and I'm like, 
let me call him my brother. He's a finance whiz, you know. And basically, I said, you're my co-founder. You know, take the batons and you run with this. And his initial title was CFO. And then, you know, finance and operations get very tight. You're planning inventory. You're planning cash flow. You're planning pricing. So he, you know, his title kind of evolved to CFO, COO. Uh, and that's how, that became the initial pillar. You know, it was myself as the CEO, which basically means wearing, doing the work that no one else does. And the CFO, COO, that, he played that role and, and, a, and a VP of sales. And, and as that's, those are the three pillars that made us grow. And then eventually, you know, he has like a VP of finance and a VP of operations. But he still oversees all of that. And then there's a sales team. There's a sales VP of sales that has various teams. So those are the three main things I would say. Yeah. Where are you at in the I guess I would say our our approach. We have something very specific that we need to demonstrate. Um, and so we do, we've taken a lot of advice because both our founders are researchers. So no entrepreneurial background. Um, we've done a lot of work to get advice, like a lot of advice, because then eventually you get trends that come out of it. Um, so the approach that we've taken is we definitely started with a CTO um, because we're very technically focused. Um, but a lot of the other roles that um, because of the business model that we're pursuing, they didn't really make sense to bring on in kind of that founder level. So we do a little bit more ad hoc. So um, we have like a part time individual who does the CFO role um, and that we supplement that with uh, key advisors that we put together in our advisory board. Um, but again, like that, that won't become important for what we're trying to accomplish for probably two years. Um, and, and in terms of like the operations, we realized very early on that uh, the CTO role was going to have to take over a lot of that kind of operations coordination in the early demonstration. So instead of bringing on another person, um, you know, just because we didn't, we didn't run across like the perfect fit for somebody who could fill that role yet. Uh, we're actually bringing on uh, like a consulting firm that's going to work intimately with us and not only help us with the tasks that we don't have experience in um, or that we might need to supplement, uh, but also they've done this with many, many companies so they can actually train us how we should be thinking about this process. So um, what that kind of comes out of that is is it gets us through this this first kind of hump, lets us get through a lot of pivots because at this point, I mean, if you'd asked us six months ago who we thought the next person to add on would be, it would have given you a vastly different answer. Um, and so that's kind of the way that, that we've approached it now. But there are there are a few key roles that we will that we will add on as we make decisions. And I mean, part of it comes back to the funding uh, because some of that you, you can't bring on team members before you're able to support them or support the work that you would need them to do. Um, but I think, yeah, I think, I think for us, the other thing that we're really looking for, I think, is uh, a little bit more of a duality in the roles um, because we're trying to bridge the gap between a very complex chain and a very fundamental technology, but also manufacturing um, that we've looked at. Like, for example, um, we're looking at, uh, you know, at the end of this year, we'll probably bring on somebody with a dual role in like a business development background, but also somebody in uh, chemistry because we actually don't. We, we make our material with a chemical process and we don't actually have anybody on the team with a background in chemistry. Um, so to be able to fill that so that um, he can make decisions, um, you know, understand the technology and what we're trying to accomplish that helps us kind of do that business development. That's kind of the way that, that we've approached it, though I'm sure that there will be lessons learned from that as well. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you. That was a really good question. Good, good discussion. I think we're out of time. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks, everybody, for the, the questions and attention. Thanks to the panel for a good discussion. Thank you.
Live from the Cafe is produced and disseminated by the Venture Cafe Foundation, a nonprofit organization striving to better connect the innovation community. To learn more about our events and resources, please visit us online at VentureCafeCambridge.org or come visit us at One Broadway in Cambridge, Massachusetts every Thursday from 3 to 8 p.m.